Enterprise Digital Podcast with Ian Aitchison and Barclay Ray, navigating the ever-expanding service management maze. Well, hello once more. It's the Enterprise Digital Podcast and I'm Barclay Ray and I am joined in tandem with my partner in crime on this. It's Ian Aitchison. Ian, how are you doing today? Hello. Oh, very well indeed. Thank you, Barclay. Very well indeed. That's good to hear. Um, if you hear other noises in the background from my microphone, it's because there's lots of building work going on around the house um, outside. So people grinding and digging and sawing and drilling. So if that's anybody picks up those noises, that's what it is. We are here to pick up on the Enterprise Digital Podcast. Uh, we have a fantastic guest. Who, who we'll introduce in a minute, but first of all, let's um, let's stick to tradition, shall we? And uh, it's uh, it's my turn to ask Ian if he's brought any trivia with him today. I have brought some trivia. Uh, firstly, I'll apologise if you know this already because it is actually a few weeks out of date. It's about oh. four weeks old, but I hadn't seen it before until today. So I'm going to treat this as fresh trivia because I always like fresh trivia. Uh, you know how AI is really a topic of great enthusiasm at the moment. Everybody likes to get on the AI bandwagon, don't they, at the moment? The AI bubble, you might say, or bubbles, the AI bubbles. So connecting that together, let me ask you, have you ever tasted the flavour of the future, Barclay? Um, That's quite a leading question, I would say, and it depends what the flavour the context is of the flavor is is this some ai created beer ah, yes. or 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 drink that's oh gonna you're very good you see what i i laid it out there for you and you spotted the pattern you're absolutely right to my amazement talking about jumping on the bandwagon and the hype bubbles uh coca-cola with their bubbles have recently announced uh that they've launched y3000 a variant of coca-cola whose flavor and design was part designed by artificial intelligence uh, and it's described as the flavor of the future. They give zero insight into how AI contributed there, zero insight. Uh, They don't comment on how nice that drink actually is, but look out for it. Y3000 is the name of the drink designed by artificial intelligence to give you the flavor of the future. What was that old advert that used to be on um, for bad driving? It was something like, you know, designed by designed by Germans, built by the Japanese, driven by Italians. <laughs> <laughs> and a picture of a junkyard with all these cars. Um, I hope it would be better than that. AI drive cars much better than people now. Yeah, and apologies to Italians. No, no, um, no offense intended. I did also read yesterday that because there's a, a shortage of, you know, a global shortage of hops, that the actual flavour of beer may be compromised by that because they they will have less hops and possibly less barley. To Ken is looking seriously concerned. This is a serious point. Um, You've sneaked in our guest already. Maybe we should move on to this week's. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for anybody who hasn't guessed who it is already, we we, we mentioned fresh something and and ken and it's ken gonzalez hey ken how are you doing i'm doing well good to be with you guys 
Uh, it's great to have you on again. You've been on before, and uh, hopefully you'll recover from the news about the beer. I find it quite challenging. I, I, that I, is definitely concerning. Yeah, I know. I mean, I think it's probably one of those things where it might affect mass-produced beer or something like that. I mean, I, I quite like beer that doesn't have a huge taste, and I know that you like a variety of beers, but I quite like it more for the experience of the, the coldness and the, the chemicals. I like the chemicals in there as well. But anyway, um, okay. what are you doing these days? I mean, I, I, when you were on before, we were talking about various analyst things, and you were working for a well-known analyst firm, but now you've you've moved yes. on. Yeah, I transitioned out of doing analyst work uh, just a, a little over a year ago. And I am now working on the what uh, analysts refer to as the dark side. <laughs> I'm uh, working for a vendor organization. And uh, specifically that uh, vendor organization is Freshworks. But I am here as uh, Ken Gong, the industry professional, not in any quote-unquote professional capacity. So you're here as an amateur then? <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I mean, I'm a sure. Practitioner, I, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the. I, I think it's. I mean, you've been around in the industry long enough, and, and I've I've known you in various different guises for some time. So I mean, I think it'll be interesting to explore some of those yeah. different perspectives um, as we go. But I know that Ian has also been involved in. Right. Yeah, my background is um, vendor pretty much through and through, but I had lots of contact with analysts. So uh, I think that's a really interesting, the relationship between analyst organizations and vendor organizations is a really interesting relationship. I've, I've talked about this before, so maybe we can go there a bit as we go through uh, go through today's podcast. We certainly shall. Um, for now, Ken, welcome. Good to see you again. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's good to be here. Okay, we're introduced. We're reintroduced. I know that you're hot off a plane and probably jet lagged and and whatever, but that's how I feel most most days. Let's kick off the conversation and just pick up on that last point. I think was, which is quite an interesting one. And you know, we've all had different roles in the industry, and and it's it's just really good to hear. Would be good to get your initial perspective of the difference of, sort of doing the same kind of work, but from a different perspective, if you like. It's definitely a different perspective, I'll tell you that much. I I often feel like a person who's stuck between two worlds. (laughs) Not quite a person who's responsible for products, right? So I I don't like own an ITSM product or a CX product or something uh, where um, I either do the marketing or the development of it. But I really try to serve the people that do that and help them better understand what analysts need in order to effectively evaluate products is having actually done that work. It's uh, I think I bring a pretty unique perspective to it. And the other part of it is being able to help the analyst community understand what it is that we do, uh, you know, from a company perspective. And I think anybody that's engaged in the analyst relations profession uh, or, you know, that, that type of work it does this kind of work where you want to represent whatever the company's doing in the best possible light. 
uh, of course, being factual about it. And then you also want to be able to talk with the various industry owners to understand what they're talking with their customers about. So I want to be able to uh, reach out to different people and be able to say, hey, what are your customers telling you that are of major concern to them? What are their priorities? Where are they having challenges? Uh, with the hope that somebody would actually be able to listen to that, synthesize it, and be able to, at some point, turn that into either a new product or an improvement to an existing product. Okay, so yeah, you're saying that there's there's lots of different aspects. One thing that occurred to me there, and, and maybe we could explore this, is the way you described that, it sounds quite like when you're in an organization, an enterprise organization, the business relationship manager role kind of goes between if you like the IT or the service provider organization and the end customer and tries to marry them up, if, if you like, you know, go back to the provider organization, say, why are we not doing this or and so on. Does it feel a bit like that? I mean, it's, it's obviously different in, in a number of different ways, but that would be an analogy that kind of, well, it worked for me. I, I think it's a useful analogy uh, because in a very real sense, you are acting as a, uh, and I don't want to pigeonhole BRMs as being a middleman, but you're you're definitely standing between two worlds where you're not doing the you're not of one and you're not of the other, and, and you're trying to bring the parties together so that mutual value can be created. That's the way I think about it. It's um uh, the relationship between vendors and and analysts is sometimes. Uh, and I'll make a bold statement here because someone said it to me the other day. They sometimes said, oh, well, it's a bit of a pay-to-play game. It's a bit of a, if you want to be placed highly in analyst reports, then you have to pay the analysts lots of money. And I I know my response to that, but I'd be interested in in yours as well, Ken, on that. Do, do you feel the relationship and the, 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 the ratings vendors and their tools get are influenced by the dollars that the vendors have? Absolutely not. And I, I, I can relate to this from the work that I did. So there are certain firms which, in order to be able to engage with them, you must have a commercial relationship. And that requires your paying money. But from the organization that I used to work for, we were, as as the analyst doing the work, I was never aware necessarily of who, number one, were they a customer and how much money did they bring in? Never, ever factored into any conversation I ever had. And as a matter of fact, when we're doing research or when they, that company does research, account executives are, are not even included in the process. And it's important that they're not, because there needs to be that sense of objectivity. And everybody I know that has been doing that work uh, did it with me and still does to this day, takes great pride in really bringing an objective perspective to the evaluating the materials that the vendors give to be considered as part of the the research that's going to be published. Yeah. So 
that the thought that it's pay for play, uh, quite frankly, it's offensive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's, I, I would give pretty much the same response as, as you, that having been in that relationship between the vendor and the analyst, the analysts certainly are not influenced by any any transaction of funds. It, it doesn't work like that. I think there is a little something, however, I'll say that I think a vendor that invests heavily in influencing analysts in all the ways they invest their time, their effort, the briefings, the meetings, the going to events, the getting to know the analysts, if they're investing themselves into that, they are more likely to influence what an analyst knows and says about that organization because the analyst understands more about that organization. That's not pay to play, but it, your investment will influence how well understood you are. Do you think there's, there's something in that? I, I think that is true. And I also think that's one of the reasons why a, a vendor organization would want to purchase seats and gain access to the analysts at that firm. Hmm. Because they're investing in 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 communicating and and influencing the analyst, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but vendors uh, do when they invest in a relationship with with analyst organisations, they want that analyst organisation to understand what they do. They want them to understand their vision. They want them to be yes. seen as visionaries. And if if you can't get that message across as a vendor, if you can't get an analyst to understand your amazing vision and this incredible technology. If they can't see it and understand it, they won't be talking about it. They won't be rating you. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, that, you're, you're spot on, Ian, because I, I think at the end of the day, and I had this direct experience, the only thing that the analyst has at the end of the day is their credibility, their, uh, their reputation. So if you try to provide some input that, or a customer comes to you and says, hey, I'm having an issue, I'm looking for new tooling. That's a fair amount of some analysts' daily workload, <laughs> you know, where they, they come and say, this is what we're doing. Uh, the analyst will ask questions about, okay, so what are you looking for? Why are you making the change? What are your concerns? And based upon that, that helps them build a picture of what customers want and need because, you know, they're doing anywhere between 400 to 1,000 customer calls every year. That yeah. gives you the ability to look across broad customer communities and be able to say, hmm, this is what's actually happening. So the the three things that we get to look at are both the the way that that particular firm thinks about a market, there's what the market's actually doing that's independent of their point of view on it, right? Because no two analyst firms have the same perspective. Yeah. And then there's what the vendors do that participate in those markets, which is all over the map. Trying to find the where the what the right fit is for a customer that sits in the middle of those three that uh, the holy triumvirate if you will is is a really it's a bit of a challenge and they will come and say hey these are the people we're considering what do you think what are the shortcomings what are the advantages and if i was not vent if i was not briefed by a vendor telling me what your capabilities are in a specific area i would say go talk to the vendor 
But those vendors that took the time to actually reach out and for the most part, it does not cost anybody anything to do a vendor briefing. So if I, I, I've taken a lot of vendor briefings, even from small companies that would say, you know, you're, you're really not a player in this space. And there's, uh, you know, and what I mean player is somebody that Gartner or other large firm customers would talk about, right? They would say, oh, we know who the, who's who in the zoo in terms of what the popular products are. But I've intentionally brought to the table to customer conversations I've had, making introductions to vendors that were a really good fit yeah, for what they were doing because that vendor had a specific take on the way that they were approaching ITSM tooling that was useful. Mm-hmm. I'm, and I, I happen to know in this specific instance that the this particular vendor was not a customer. And I was more than happy to be able to provide the recommendation that the customer check them out because they took the time to let me know what their product capabilities were. And I could ask questions and it, that helped me. It helped me help them. It helped me help the customer. Yeah. Yeah. Which is good. And now, of course, you've swung over to what you call the dark side. Uh, there's always a dark, no matter where you are, people talk about going to the dark side. If you go into a sales role, it's yes. to the dark side. Yeah. yeah. And I know Barclay's ready with another question, but I'm going to follow up with just one more before he comes back in, which is I had um, a colleague who came to uh, my organization from a uh, analyst organization. And she came into the vendor organization. And I said, after a few weeks, you know, having a one-to-one and how's it going. And she said, I didn't understand why it was so hard for vendors to do the right thing. She said, as an analyst, we would always, it would be obvious what they needed to do. You should be doing this and this and this. It's obvious. And now that I'm with a vendor, I understand all of the moving parts. I didn't realize just how much is going on and how many um, influencing factors there are and how many dimensions and how many considerations and i now understand how much work's involved so what seems obvious to me as an analyst i understand is much much harder to a to a vendor have you seen any of that in your your transfer across into the vendor world well having been a product manager before and actually been in a development organization i do understand the nature of the role and i never took any guidance that i would provide a vendor as being well, you know, it's obvious you should just do this. I would try to help construct the case for them so that they could work out for themselves whether they believed it was the right thing to do or not. But it it actually is quite challenging for me being the, a head of analyst relations because I'm not the person that says, okay, yes, we're going to build that. And I'm also helping to interpret the guidance that the analyst community is providing so it's it's really kind of strange being between two worlds because as soon as uh, there's also another dynamic when you go internal to an organization people listen to you differently <laughs> imagine that yeah i was gonna say oh they don't listen to you at all <laughs> but i i think in my case uh, people actually do listen to me because they they understand where i've come from what my experience is and i've been able to uh you know provide value to them in a way that's very tangible but uh, many analyst relations professionals uh, are, they have probably more marketing backgrounds than the 
actually coming from the analyst community and having done the work. And that could actually be quite challenging. And it's a, one of the things that I, I noticed is that people that come with purely a marketing background tend to rely on, you know, like what uh, Ian was saying about influencing. Oh, we need to influence the analysts or uh, we need to include a lot of flowery marketing language. And quite frankly, that is a probably one of the biggest turnoffs that a vendor can possibly do. Because if I'm trying to communicate something to my customer and they've got a legit question, I want to be able to get to the heart of the matter. Can the thing, can X do Y to be able to meet that customer's need? I don't need the posturing. I don't need to have the customer pitch. I need to understand what it actually does so that I'm giving factual, timely, and relevant information. Yeah. Yeah, very good. I was going to say that that, that sort of takes us on a little bit, just to sort of widen the conversation out, because I, I think I mean, the point you made there, and Ian made as well, about going being in both organizations or, or seeing things from a different perspective i i mean i personally would would only want really to engage with with analysts you know for advice if if i thought that they understood the environment that they were advising on um and that's the same with consultancy i think is is that you know we sh we, we should know and and we should know from practical experience uh, and and certainly like yourself that's what i do every kind of every week and when i do when i do i i get i don't get as many as you would have had but i do get vendor briefings i'll get offered vendor briefings and it's it's always intriguing to see what their perception is of for me what i what i do and and where that fits in and you know sometimes it's kind of quite illuminating as well and there's one recently where you know, the, the the this particular company kept saying to me, "Well, you're the process guy, aren't you? You're the guy that does processes." And I, and I actually yeah. turned to him and said, "No, no, you're the process. Guy. You're you you've got you create the tools that run those processes. So if the processes aren't any good, maybe that's to do with your tool. Not I I, I, I haven't written a process for twenty years. You know, and I constantly get asked to review them, and people say, "Is this a good?" I said, well, it may very well be a good process, but it, the question is, how is it run? Does it have ownership and governance and, and all that kind of good stuff? So the, the perspective sometimes even in the industry of what other people are doing, you know, maybe back to Ian's first point about, oh, well, these guys are just getting doing this because they're getting paid. It, you know, it's, it's, it can be can be quite illuminating. I, I put it put it that way. Um, I was I would suggest... Sort of broadening the the conversation around you know how we might look at other areas like that with a different perspective, because um, I know that I mean I know that you worked uh, Ken and uh, when you worked for people like G two G three and so on and and we're doing more on the kind of consulting quasar you know consulting side of things. Um, do, I mean, as an observation, do do you think that there is a good under let's start with that do you think there's a good enough appreciation of what people do in that area and and maybe training as well you know is, is that really effective or my experience i suppose is that very often vendors just go and do what they do and and there isn't enough if you like synergy or tie up with what what else might be going on if you know if, if we're looking at 
how we look at new models or how we integrate frameworks or how we we might be trying to do that from a industry perspective. Yeah, I've got a tool to put in in 20 days and you know I'm, I'm going to get that done. What's your thoughts on that? I think there's a pretty significant gap. Uh, and it, do, it doesn't matter who the vendor is. They, they've got product enablement teams. And uh, while some people will call them consultants, I, I bristle at the term uh, because really it's about I spend my days installing and configuring products for people that need me to do that. And there's nothing wrong with that. I actually, that's a, it's a very valuable thing from the times I've actually run professional services practices in other organizations. I, I think it makes a whole lot of financial sense. You get somebody who understands the product, knows how to get it installed and configured and running so you can be using it. That's a tremendous value. Why should you learn on the go and deal with the all of the, the vagrancies that go along with, oh, well, how do the installer work? And, you know, you get to develop some chops doing that kind of work. It's not, I won't say it's like high value, like business value, but it can help you go from zero to using a tool in fairly short order. So I think that enablement work is really important and customers should be doing that with the products that they purchase it, it just makes sense where i think the gap is is in related to advisory services and i think that advisory done in conjunction with product enablement is the thing that people really should be looking at because we we don't just want the tool. We want to be sure that the tool is going to be fit for purpose and helping to achieve some business result. Because if we're not doing that, uh, why are we spending the money? Why are we spending the time? What is the intention here? And oftentimes I find because we've taken more of what I would call a traditional view of IT service management, that's where we lose the plot. We think it's about the tools. We think it's about the ITSM competencies. And it, it stays inwardly focused with the IT organization instead of being able to bridge out to the world that the people we serve actually live in. And I was actually having this conversation not too long ago with someone else where, you know, they were going on and on about maturity and, you know, like IT maturity and, my comment was, well, that's a bunch of crock. Because <laughs> uh, really, when you get right down to it, you can be the most mature organization in the world. And if your customer thinks you're a schmuck, you've lost. If they don't have faith and confidence that what you do helps them do what they need to do, you have lost. So why not actually focus there and then eliminate anything that doesn't actually line up with what helps you deliver that. Interestingly, you actually will find you'll become more mature just by doing that. And retain more clients. I mean, that, that, that's the, the merry-go-round that we're all on all the time of replacement, replacement. That does sum it up for me. And, and, and the, the, you definitely need those guys that you were talking about earlier, but you need... You need people that that can see a bit further as well and understand the context because 
there's no point in saying we've done a great technical implementation if you know the, the, there's a mismatch match on expectations or as I constantly used to find out that the, the tech guys when they were on site as it used to be anybody that was just walking past the, the, the server and would stop in and say hey can you do this hey can you do that and before you knew what happened you've got a monster I mean the biggest one for me was risk there was absolutely no concept of the fact that you know this is all going great but actually the organization doesn't have enough resources or doesn't have enough resources that is going to complete this uh in yeah. time so that's not just a hit for them or risk for them it's a risk for us as a, as a vendor and if, if we don't do anything about it then it's entirely left to their um devices as to whether they'll as to whether they will fix it ian's looking quizzical there as if um, only semi i th- i think because Ken was describing there the fact that vendors with their tools, their consultative services are based around getting the best out of their tool, which kind of makes sense. You're also describing an outcome-based focus of not worrying about the tooling at all, but worrying about what makes your clients successful. And I see there's a little slice of the world, maybe, which brings those two pieces together. And it's not the vendors, and I speak for someone that works for a vendor, but uh, it's the independent services uh, consultancy organizations who will both configure your tool, but start with talking around your business outcomes and designing the right, I say processes, but you know what I mean, Um, designing all, all of that part of it, and then even sometimes picking and choosing the right tool to serve it. But they then provide that, configuring of the tool so if you can find those in the middle they're not locked into a vendor's technology and they are experts in changing the way it works to deliver value but they can also ensure that you get the most out of a tool now you know with itsm tools can you'll know very well there's a great deal you can do with them and they're highly configurable a great deal of time into that and some people do but some organizations don't want to invest that time they want to throw money to use their time for other things right i don't want to use my time and my resources rebuilding self-service portal forms i want those people to be doing something more valuable so i've got some money in my budget i'm going to pay someone to come and do that design work for me and i'll use my resources somewhere else yeah but and i also think that smart vendors will be looking at building a really robust ecosystem of partners that can provide those value-added services and start using some of their learnings to be able to impact not only the mechanical portions of how their products work, but also help inform the way that they sell, market, and support these products. Uh, Because, again, this... If you are just successful in installing the tool and closing the sale and the customer who's purchased this ends up failing with their customer, that's as much your failure because are you going to get a renewed SaaS contract? Yeah, exactly. Likely not. Yeah. As I always say, as a vendor, our success is entirely predicated on your success as a customer. We need you to be successful. This isn't a scam. We're not trying to flog stuff and run away. Because you wouldn't remain in in the market credibly for very long if you did that. We genuinely want 
our, our client organizations, our customers to be successful using our tools because that's how you grow. You want them to talk about how amazing it is, what a difference it's made. You want them to be successful in their careers thanks to your technology. You want that because that's the only way to get success. And people sometimes, you said dark side, you see, so people sometimes think vendors, they're all about just trying to screw organizations for money. And obviously we're commercial, right? We're commercial businesses. We're trying to pay our mortgages and feed our children. And that's the business that's that we go to to do that. But it's based on delivering success and value to our customers. So they come back SaaS, so they pay renewals, right? It's a SaaS world. Yeah. If you're crap, then they're not going to pay the next year's renewal and they'll go somewhere else. You have to be good. You do. I Just one final thing to add on this, which is just from previous point, but the difficult thing for the buyer, I think, is sorting out. Because then I think, Ian, you, you sort of painted the picture there of the organization that advises and can implement. And I think that's that would be the ultimate sort of source of, of, of good information. It, it's just being able to sort out the wheat from the chaff of them or the, the good and the bad from them, because some of them are, some of them, you know, I think, Ken, you mentioned it earlier, you, people that are called consultants, and I do bristle with that as well because I have a, quite a specific understanding of that term, which is about, you know, understanding, working on behalf of the client to get the best possible solution for them and everything else doesn't matter, you know, and doing that with ethics and reputation. And that is the thing that still, I think, is a challenge. Um, but let's move on. Where is, uh, just from your perspective as well, Ken, and looking ahead, looking forward, there's lots of stuff going on in our industry. Um, there's always been stuff been going on, but I, I, of course, I'm an old cynic and, and probably I'm too old to be moved from that position. But, you know, we hear constantly about everything changing in the world. It's not going to be the same in a couple of years, and everybody's going to be. I mean, I have a few years ago, it was all we were all going to be out of a an IT job and driving cabs. Now we've got driverless cars, so it's not just out. You know, we're all going to be. I don't know, digging ditches or something. I don't know what we're going to be doing. What are your thoughts on where we're going as a, as as an industry, and you know, the things that are, if you like, temporal, and then the things that are. A bit more permanent, and and where do you where do you see yourself, you know, in in terms of all those kind of contexts? I am known for asking very long questions, so you know, that's... very long, <laughs> very long, very long, and I I don't mind answering that one because you know much of the conversation today has been around, or I should say, in recent months, has been around AI, and I, I think with good cause. People got an experience of what using AI technologies like and see a, a whole bunch of promise. And I, I think it's good to be excited about that. At the same time, we need to temper the excitement with the bringing some reality to what can it actually do? What are the risks? And what are the things that we need to watch out for? Because... You know, I've had some people say, oh, well, you know, low code, no code tools are going to be done because now generative AI is going to build all that stuff for me. Well, that actually, the, uh, there's a kernel of truth in there and there's a whole lot of white space. 
we we don't know how that is all going to play out. So it's important for people to be thinking about this from an experimentation perspective. How do you evaluate these? How do you test these things? Because this is not like 2004 where, you know, people were selling these large enterprise software agreements and you could buy everything and then build sandboxes and, you know, play with technology. And, you know, if it sat on the shelf, so what? You know, it's just part of the ELA. We got the stuff anyway. So, no, we, we actually need to be really focused about how we experiment to look to see, is this viable for the kinds of things that we want to do? And that's one part of the equation. But the second part of the equation is what are we going to use it for? So there's always been this undercurrent of fear that technology is going to displace the need for people. And I fundamentally reject this. Fundamentally reject it. There's always going to be a need for people. Just maybe not doing the things that they've always been doing. And this ends up really being the rub for people that are... Uh, I won't say long in the tooth, but, you know, have been doing something for a long period of time. You have a little bit of don't move my cheese going on where it's like, I just want to keep doing the thing I'm doing because I like doing it. I'm used to doing it. It's easy for me. We are at a point in time where, and it, even if it wasn't for generative AI or any of the related technologies, it's incumbent on anybody that's working in a technical field to be thinking about not just technical skill, but how is it that you can get yourself better prepared to do more of the BRM type work, to be doing things that are focused on customers and their outcomes so that you can become the translator between what they need to be able to do the thing to run the organization and how you can actually build that out. Because it's not one size fits all. There's probably lots of different technical approaches one could take to build out some offer that your internal customer can use. On what basis do you evaluate that to see what's the right fit of those moving parts that gives you the quality, cost, and performance that is needed to meet the business need, but not be so expensive or so complex that it ends up tanking the initiative for the business? makes their costs too high, and then they can't afford to do what they need for the people they serve. It's it's a very delicate dance. And anybody in this field needs to be taking this perspective of, I got to broaden my skill set out. And I can't rely on being doing the same thing for the next 30 years. Nothing's going to last 30 years. The obsolescence factor that that period of time is just going to keep shrinking yeah yeah i that's quite similar Buckley. we were talking about this a few weeks back weren't we about i think i was talking about the with the the incoming changes that we're seeing with ai and automation how you could almost start to see it professionals particularly from a service perspective uh separating into two very broad functions one of them who are using these new tools to create new ways of connecting across the business and doing the things that need to be done, whatever they are. So the creators build these new flows of AI-driven behavior and automation behavior. The other group, the business experts who understand what's needed and are able to translate business outcome need 
into a form that can be built into the technology to deliver that. And now I might refer to those as maybe a form of product manager, where your role is to understand what real value is that is delivered. Don't worry about what it looks like. That doesn't matter. What matters is understanding the business and where the business is trying to get to. And from that going, we need something that does this automatically and cleverly. And then the creators build it and roll it out. And you can almost break into those two clusters of, of people. I thought you were going to say operations and development. <laughs> no, yeah, we're all talking because we, we mentioned the thing, you mentioned the thing about uh, how the patent for uh, suitcases with wheels was only actually created in 1990 or something. Or mm, yeah. And then I said, well, yeah, there used to be portals at station. and said, well, you know, where are they now kind of thing? That was technology changing that. So, I mean, I, I think we shouldn't be afraid of the fact that technology will change things. I think, I mean, I, I was going to say that there's there's two main poles of response at the moment. And and I think for a lot of the vendors, and I know I've been talking talk to quite a few vendors and, and analysts in the last couple of weeks about this, because the, there's either people who are really keen and just want to get on and do lots of cool new things. And, you know, there's a big risk there of, you know, something going wrong quite seriously. And then there's those who are cautious, who are, who are very risk focused and realize the potential of this. But the downside there is that they, they may miss out because they take too long, you know, and I think somewhere in the middle, there's going to be some sense of reality that says there's the risks be aware of the risks. Make sure people don't just go on to chat GPT and put in all your company details or whatever. Um, there's security risks, of course, and there's bias risks, and we've just got to be cautious of that. But also, there's a lot of things that are just going to be a lot better more quickly and get on with it, because I think there's, there's a little bit of a push-me-pull-you on that. You know, How long is it going to take? How long is it going to cost? Is it actually going to take six months or is it going to take two years because of, you know, all these kind of things? Those are the kind of things that are flying around for me and less so about the the actual reality of what these tools are doing or can I don't know, Ken, if you listened to one of our previous episodes where Ian got chat JP to write a poem about Enterprise Digital Podcast. <laughs> it was really good. <laughs> wow. Absolutely. I did not listen to that one. I don't know if anybody did, but uh, so, I mean, you know, just in terms of the reality of that, if you were still in your kind of analyst um, role, I mean, what would you be saying to, you know, IT buyers, CIOs and so on about where they need to put their money on this? And how well, far... that's exactly the thing I was saying earlier, Barkley. I think that experimentation uh, like developing some chops around how do you experiment with things mm -hmm. not just you know go buy something and play with it but like have you, you want to number one understand some of the basics about it not like you need to be having some phd in the topical area but you need to have enough of a grounding to be able to come up with a hypothesis <laughs> design some tests Look to see where, how you can apply that in the context of your organization. Like what outcomes are you trying to produce? What benefit do you expect to get? And that experimental type of approach where you collect the data from it and you can now go through and say, oh, this did not work. 
Or, you know what, this actually worked a lot better than we thought it would. Building those chops with all of the staff is absolutely uh, where I would go because th this is something that I believe the staff actually wants to do because or should want to do because this is part of the new set of skills that they're going to need to be successful and to deal with these new technologies that are coming. One thing I can tell you about generative AI, we are way, way early in the game around where this can possibly go. I'm I'm very excited about it, but I would not even be making predictions at this point about where it could go. I, I think we're going to see lots of applications and we're going to see lots of different approaches, just like we have with any of the areas where we've seen technical innovation. And it's going to require that we we play with these things and see where where the market actually goes. So employees want to do this as not only being able to have the skills to be able to do it, but so they can actually fine tune their radar and determine where they want to be working. And organizations need to be doing it so they can actually be sure that they're spending the the right amount of money on the right stuff, not over-promising and not mismanaging customer expectations. And this is a uh, conversation to senior management or middle management because to do that ken you've got to make sure those people those those individuals that need to do the experimentation you've got to make sure they have the time and space to do that so if they're daily absolutely cranking the handle and serving fast food i'll use that analogy again somehow you have to take away serving fast food from them so that they can focus on how to create a steak and Dauphinois potatoes and you know how to make something amazing rather than churning up fast food that's my usual analogy right you've got to free them up and if you don't do that they can't experiment and if they can't experiment then you're trapped when the new innovations come along you won't keep up and you'll be swept away so the starting yeah. point is actually freeing up people's time so they can do this yeah yeah well and that's also why i've been on about the whole stay focused on the customer and this is one of the things where I find IT leaders have been perpetually kind of confused because instead of doing that, they'll have conversations about, oh, let's gain more ticket deflection, as if ticket deflection really makes a difference. You you believe you're going to be able to do the same thing with less people. It It's almost as if they're abdicating responsibility for doing what they actually need to do to serve the customer. And in, instead of thinking about it as, hey, look, maybe I can implement some of these tools and use them. Now that will give me a foundation where I can actually free up that time so I can help those employees start doing other more interesting value added activity that will either help us as a provider organization or provide new sources of value to the customers we serve. Everything comes down to time. Yeah. Every, we can talk about this another time, Bobby, but everything comes down to time, freeing up time, measuring time, releasing time, saving time, using time. It does. And, and I think it's a really good point. I mean, I really like that concept of the um, perpetual confusion of IT managers. I think that's that should be a title for at <laughs> least one paper. But no, that the innovation does, doesn't just come by beating people over the head. You need to give people time and um you know, maybe that's where some of the quick wins of of uh, automation and so on can help us. 
Ken, that's a great conversation. Thank you very much. So we we have gone round in our usual trip around the universe in a number of different aspects there. We're going to use the um, perpetual confusion of IT managers, I think, as as an ongoing heading. I, maybe that's another podcast, the perpetual confusion of IT managers. It's now over to Ian to ask Ken once more, um, bearing in mind what I was saying about hops as well earlier on. Yeah, I should have looked up what we asked you last time, Ken, about your favourite podcast drink. I'm sure it's a uh, yeasty ale of some sort, but it might be a red wine. Let's find out. What would be your drink on the podcast bar? Um, I would uh, go for a barrel-aged stout by Fremont Brewing. They they have a number of them, and uh, they are uh, – I absolutely love them. Okay, Fremont Brewing. Right, I, one to look out for. I'm guessing that's West Coast. Is Fremont West Coast or is that East Coast? Yes, they are, they are definitely West Coast. Yeah, okay. All right. Very good. And I know for for sure that uh, Ken Gorn also sampled some interesting new gin cocktails last week. Uh, I don't know where that was, but... Yes. Ken, thank you very much for joining. How, how do people get hold of you? What's where, where do they find you if they want to have a carry on these? So um, my, my website is... Uh, www.kennethgonzalez.com, two Z's, Z-A-L-E-Z, not E-S. And uh, you can also, I've got links to my socials in there, and there's a a feedback form, so if somebody wants to send a message, gets right to me. I'm happy to engage with anybody. So as an IT manager who's confused, (laughs) what do they do? Like cold. Well, I mean, Ken, I mean, you, you're sort of multi, I mean, pilot, marine musician, all sorts of Captain America, really. I mean, you know, if you're, if, if you're an IT manager and you're confused, call Ken gone and you'll, uh, you'll get a response. Okay. Um, thanks very much. We'll see you again. We'll see you soon. No doubt. Ken, thanks for your participation. Thank you guys. Thank you, Ken. And- Ian too. And just a quick reminder for everybody out there, if you'd like to contribute or ask us a question, um, please take a look at our... We have a small small but perfectly formed website landing page that has information about our uh, podcast. And we're also regenerating some of the um, content from previous ones that start to go out in LinkedIn. So there's a really good article on Sally Bog last week. Um, thanks very much. We'll see you again on next edition of the Enterprise Digital Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.